Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Check out their whole collection of podcasts and their listing of live events over at OsirisPod.com. That's OsirisPod.com. I have a truly special episode for you today, one which features an interview with prolific author and renowned scientist and thinker, Howard Bloom, who was also a music publicist in the 1970s and 1980s for performers such as, get this, Prince, Billy Joel, Michael Jackson, Bob Marley, and Sticks, just to name a few. He has published a book on Islam that's called The Muhammad Code, an autobiography called How I Accidentally Started the 60s. That's the focus of this episode and three books on human evolution and group behavior. Those are The Genius of the Beast, Global Brain, and The Lucifer Principle. Howard has been called the Einstein, Newton, and Freud of the 21st century. That's some nice company right there by Britain's Channel 4 TV. One of his seven books, that's Global Brain, was the subject of a symposium thrown by the Office of the Secretary of Defense, which included representatives from the State Department, the Energy Department, IBM, and MIT. His work has been published in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Wired, Psychology Today, and Scientific America, among many other publications. He has been in science since the age of 10, starting in microbiology and theoretical physics. Currently, he's working on a project entitled The Grand Unified Theory of Everything in the Universe, including the Human Soul. And he can be heard at 1.06 a.m. Eastern Time. I love that specific time. Every Wednesday night on 545 radio stations on Coast to Coast AM. Even amid his enormous contributions to science, Howard found the time to birth the largest PR firm in the music industry, which led him to work with the aforementioned artists, as well as, I want to name a few more, Paul Simon, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss, Queen, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, and Run DMC. In that role, get this as well, he helped found the NAACP, Farm Aid, and Amnesty International. Also recently, he's collaborated with Buzz Aldrin and the 11th president of India, Dr. APJ Kalam, on harvesting solar power in space and transmitting it to Earth, a path to net zero and the Green New Deal. In what is a career and life-spanning interview, me and Howard dig deep into Howard's roots, inspirations, and adventures that helped forge one of the most fascinating and innovative minds of the modern era. We discuss the teachings of poets and scientists that have forever shaped Howard's worldview and the dynamic way in which he lives his life. We explore the idea of ecstatic emotions. We talk about having an interdisciplinary approach to both work and life, the benefits of being a perpetual outsider, his current work with the Howard Bloom Institute, and so, so much more. He's such a fascinating mind. It was such a treat to talk to him. I really want to give a shout out. And thanks to Carolyn Kingians, who connected me with Howard. You can find her work, a bunch of her short stories and poetry at Across the Margin. It is excellent stuff. Give that a look. And I have no doubt you're going to enjoy this interview with Howard Bloom. Across the Across the Across the 
podcast michael can you hear me yes hi how you doing good i really really appreciate your time here i'm excited to talk to you well you have an interesting variety of things that you've covered before me yeah Um, a there's a novelist who writes for the new york times and the new yorker Mm -hmm. um the guy who wrote about trees yeah um so it looks like that you checked it out yeah so it looks like you you do what i do you are transdisciplinary i was gonna bring one of the questions i have is i really appreciate your interdisciplinary approach to not just your career but to life i mean there's you can't really box you in there's there's you know they they might have tried but it can't happen well you know there's uh and we should probably do this on tape though i think we're taping already already recording okay but okay there's this relatively new thing it's two years old it's called Uh the howard bloom institute Mm. And and the idea is to assuming that my work is of any value is to perpetuate it beyond my lifetime. Love it. Love it. So that other people can follow this example for what it's worth, because there are Mm -hmm. a lot of people like you and me, Michael, who have a wide variety of curiosities Mm -hmm. and discouraged from indulging in those curiosities. We're called intellectual butterflies (laughs) and dilettante and all kinds of stuff. Um, well, the fact is that within the Howard Bloom Institute, we've, we are moving ahead with something that I created in 2001 yeah. and it's called omnology and it is a discipline for the promiscuously curious. Wow. Um, it's a discipline for the omnivorously curious. Yeah. Yeah. It's for people who don't want to be stovepiped into just one narrow specialization, but who want to indulge in all the specializations that their curiosities drive them toward and the goal is that if you look at a vast variety of disciplines instead Mm -hmm. of just one you see a big picture that nobody else has quite seen from that point of view absolutely so when you hit when you hit 40 and Uh all your friends are um wondering why they're on this planet and if there are women, they're planning elaborate divorces to find out who they really are. And if they're men, they're buying little red sports cards and picking up blondes and cheating on their wives because they have no idea of why they are on planet Earth. Yeah. You will just be coming back from the wilderness of your yeah. multiple curiosities with mm-hmm. your first answers, your first big picture visions. Um, so while your friends will think that they are the at the ends of their careers, yeah. you will know that you are at the beginning yep. of yours. Yeah. Um, so that is that is Omnology. And uh, we're creating it as a course yep. for Kepler Space University in Florida. Wow. And the goal is to use that as a toehold in academia so we can spread it um, to other colleges and universities. And ultimately, the member of the Howard Bloom Organization or the Howard Bloom Institute, who is uh, handling Omnology, wants to take its five-year-olds because when she was three and five years old, she had all these amazing curiosities Uh and there was no term or role model available to her to validate what she was. They're always asking you to pick one, right? When you're little, what are you going to be when you grow up? 
Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So your dad sits you down in your sophomore year of college and he says, look, Michael, you're interested in art history. You're interested in neurobiology and you're interested in film. Yeah. Make up your mind. What are you going to be, an art historian, a neurobiologist or a filmmaker? And until you make up your mind, you're nothing. Yep. And omnology is there so you can say, screw you, dad. <laughs> I have these multiple interests. They are my drivers. They are my my empowerers. Um, they're not my burdens. Um, and I'm going to follow them. It's an absolute gift to be interested in other things. There's that great line. And um, I mean, at 10 years old, you have that line, you know, ever since I was 10, everybody knew I was going to be a college professor. Reminds me of that Goodfellas line every time since I was little, you know, I, I knew I wanted to be a gangster. But you, I mean, right, you spat in that, you spat in that face of that right away. Yeah, I had to, because at, at a certain point, when I, well, I did a lot of very strange things before I graduated with an undergraduate degree from NYU. Yes, sir. It's, all, it's all in the book, too. I really enjoyed it. I actually read it a long time ago and revisiting it the last couple of weeks. It's such a wild ride. What a life you're living. It's amazing. Yeah, it's been it's been amazing. Mm -hmm. And and it's been a gift. Yeah. Um, but when when I graduated, I graduated uh, magna cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa and all of that stuff. Yep. And I graduated with four um, graduate fellowships, my choice of the four. And I suddenly realized that that grad school was going to be Auschwitz for the mind, <laughs> that it was going to kill, kill my curiosities mm -hmm. instead of expanding on them. And mm -hmm. and uh, when I was roughly 10 years old and one of the first science fiction books I read, I started reading two books a day. Yeah. One book under the desk at school and <laughs> one book when I got home. Amazing. And one of the first things I read was the first book of Isaac Asimov's Foundation. Yeah. Well, then it was called the Foundation Trilogy. Mm -hmm. Today, it's mm -hmm. seven books. Yep. Um, and in it was a phrase that I didn't know until a year ago that I had gotten from Isaac Asimov. And it was mass behavior. Mass behavior. And yeah. and and one of my fields from the very beginning has been the mass behavior of um, everything from quarks to human beings. Yeah. Everything from elementary particles to prison gangs. Yeah. Um, and um, and it's been absolutely fascinating. And mm -hmm. thank God Isaac Asimov gave me a term yeah. without yeah. which I couldn't have seen across this broad spectrum of activities because this is a profoundly social cosmos mm -hmm. and we tend to regard things in isolation yep. and try to break things down to their tiniest parts and yep. understand them on the basis of those isolated tiny parts but none of those tiny parts operate in us in, in isolation yeah they all yeah. operate as parts of groups absolutely you're right and, it's like pulling back and seeing the bigger picture no yeah, doubt exactly yeah. yep. so so i was blessed by asimov god knows who else i was blessed by because Is that, well let's talk about some of that those things you were blessed by because there's a lot of um i found inspiration in the things that were inspiring you these these kind of you know um uh, rules you came by or just these like you know things that some of the poets taught you so there's that book that you talk about dropping in your lap is that asimov because it teaches you two things no it was a juvenile book of some okay. sort Okay. So those are written for 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, and 15-year-olds. But I was 10. Yeah. And um, so it was not directly written for me. Mm -hmm. But And, you know, Michael, you know where every book in your house is. Yeah. Because they've all been in the same place since you swam to consciousness at the age of two or three. 
Mm-hmm. And nobody ever moves them. Yeah. And um, so this book appeared out of nowhere. Literally out, out of you. nowhere. It had had no place on my shelves. Good and love. I don't, or my parents' shelves. And I had no idea of where it went after mm-hmm. I read it. And it said the first two rules of science are these. Mm-hmm. The truth at any price, including the price of your life. And it mistold the story of Galileo as if he <laughs> had been willing to go to the stake to defend his truth, mm-hmm. which turns out to be historically wrong. It's but I needed that example of courage yeah. 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 at that point, 10 years old in my mm-hmm. life. And the second rule of science is look, look at things right under your nose yep. as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. Look especially at the things that you've taken for granted and everybody around you takes for granted so are invisible to you, but are right in front of you all the time and flush them into the realm of visibility uh, and then proceed from there. And it gave the example of Anton von Leeuwenhoek, who mm. invented the microscope mm. and looked at pond water, something that humans had been looking at ever since there had been humans. But when he looked at it through his lens, through the microscope, he saw that it was filled with what he called animalcules, tiny little animals with whom we had been sharing this planet from the very first time a human being um, was born on this planet. So those, the the first law is is the law of courage, the truth at any price, including the price of your life. The second is the law of awe, wonder, and surprise. And then with this... um, Stay curious. With, with this phrase, group behavior, mm-hmm. again, an illustration of the importance of having words with which to validate the things that we are or want to be or need to be. Um, I I started uh, reading when I was 12. I was reading the Lomax brothers. The Lomax mm-hmm. brothers had gone through the South in a relatively new thing called an automobile (laughs) with a relatively new thing called a tape recorder. Mm -hmm. And they had recorded every form of folk music that they could find in the South, primarily black folk music. Mm -hmm. And in the book I was reading by them, I believe that's where I ran across the term soul. And where I ran across a description of the ecstatic experience Mm. that descends on you in a black church, when you are take, when the music is flowing Mm-hmm. When um, when the rhythm is coursing through everyone in the crowd mm-hmm. and when an occasional person breaks out into what looks like an epileptic fit and yeah. is seized by by the gods, yeah. is seized by Christ yeah. or whatever he or she imagines the God of the moment. I know it. I mean, I've I've stopped everything and followed a band for a couple of years. When 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 you know, I came upon that experience as well. When you were speaking to that, yeah, go on. I want to hear right. more. So it's called it's called shouting in the yeah. black church, uh-huh. um, and a variety of other names, mm-hmm. and it fascinated me. Yep. And so when I got my um, four graduate school fellowships, mm-hmm. I had been on the trace, the tracks of this transcendent, ecstatic experience of the mm-hmm. kind that you see in all the all of the black religions in North and South America that follow the path of the Yoruban tribes, trance religions, mm. um, which started this whole thing. And it's Makumba in South America. It's uh, Juju or Voodoo um, in the islands. Um, and it's the Black Holy Roller mm. Church in North America. And I had been noticing how in the synagogue that my parents 
occasionally dragged me to. There was none of that. Screaming sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people were lined up in Lutheran pews, yeah. long wooden pews. They were so entrapping that you had to get everybody, 12 people to stand up so you could get a middle seat. Um, and once you all sat down, um, there were these books in front of you that on the back of the pew in front of you that nobody ever read. <laughs> and you stood up when the rabbi told you to stand up and you sat down when the rabbi told you to sit down. And there was nothing engaging, emotional, but ecstatic there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I knew I had to find that ecstatic experience. Now, think you've got four graduate fellowships. Um, if you accept one of them, how often are you going to get to see the ecstatic experience? Yeah. Never. Not, not Absolutely <laughs> never. No. It does not take place in a laboratory setting. A laboratory setting is isolating. No, you need a crowd mm -hmm. to have this kind of thing yeah. happen. It's yeah. quiet. No, you need a lot of rhythmic noise mm -hmm. in which people can shout, scream, yeah. uh, sing in order to make this kind of thing happen. Once upon a time, uh, many, 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 many years later, when I was stuck in bed with chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, um, there was a, a group, a millionaire was trying to establish, that was a millions were actually more than pocket change. Uh, and a millionaire was trying to establish Freud, who had been dropped out of science. He was now considered scientifically not respectable and was trying to bring Freud back to the world of science. So he spent his money flying some of the most amazing researchers in North America to New York the first Thursday of each month um, to discuss Freud in a scientific context mm -hmm. and revalidate Freud. One, what became part of these people's ritual is that every month, a little group of them would make a pilgrimage out to this bedroom in Brooklyn where I was imprisoned. Yeah. And one day, the person who came to see me was named Jacques Pangsep. He's the most brilliant researcher on the neurobiology of human emotions in the last 50 to 100 years. Mm -hmm. And Yach sat there at the foot of my bed and he said, I know your ideas are important, but they're not science until you can boil them down to laboratory experiments, experiments you can prove or disprove in the lab. So I thought about that, Michael, for about three months. Yeah. And then it occurred to me, no, the things that interest me, you will never find in the lab. Yep. The lab is a very limited instrument. And squeezing human phenomena, especially mass phenomena, mm -hmm. into the lab is an incredibly artificial experience, yep. which means that 90% of the papers whose titles you read and who you see promoted by the mainstream press yep. don't prove what their titles say at all. When you look into the details of how they're set up, they kill the experience. They're supposed to be um, researching. Well, I mean, and the deal is you can't, this is the nectar of life you're talking about. These things, you can't bottle it. You can't, this is what's so special about it. It's like, it's it's almost indefinable in some ways. Right. And so, so here's how it works. Um, which one of my books is this for? Oh, this is for the God problem. Mm. So for the God problem, all people, Barbara Ehrenreich, who is a very well-known intellectual on the left, um, I'm in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, Barbara offered to write the introduction to the paperback edition of the God problem. And in it, she said, we pose a question 
like how does the hummingbird fly? And the first thing we do to study the problem is kill the hummingbird. Well, once we've killed the hummingbird, we've lost the whole phenomena we're after. Absolutely. Flight. So we study the Perfect cells example. and its Perfect musculature yep. and its bone structure, but yep. that's not what allows the hummingbird to fly. Yep. And what she was getting at, and it's in the God problem, mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. that about 2,300 years ago, Aristotle, in two pages of a book that's now called The Metaphysics, mm -hmm. laid out the entire program for modern science. And he said, to understand how things work, you break them down to their smallest parts. We now call the smallest parts particles. Mm. Um, and then you try to understand the laws of those parts. Um, you break them down to their elementary units and you try to understand the laws of those elementary units, which mm. is where we got the phrase elementary laws. Mm. Mm. And once you understand the laws of those elements, you understand everything. Yeah. Well, we've been following the Aristotelian program. It's called reductionism for the last 2,300 years. And it's one of those things right under your nose every single day. If you're in the sciences or interested in the sciences that we don't see that we're utterly blind to this assumption, which was the same assumption that Jacques Panksepp was making when he said it's not science. So you break it down so you can prove it or disprove it in the lab. Mm -hmm. No, Jacques, you're wrong. It's not science till you can get out of the fucking lab. <laughs> it's not science until you can look at mass behavior and mass passions um, where they actually occur um, and then account for them. So. What Barbara said, Barbara Ehrenreich, about the God problem mm. is that for 250 years, we've been doing science in this reductionist way. She's talking about it ever since the establishment of the what's now called the British Academy of Sciences, the Brit British Royal Society. Yep. Um, and, um, and this book, meaning the God problem, mm. points us to the next 250 years mm. in science mm -hmm. because it's looking at these larger phenomena. Yep. Um, you know, uh, let's get back to the particles, for example. The first particles, uh, in the beginning, there's a Big Bang, right? And the Big Bang starts out as nothing but an unfurling sheet of space, time, and speed. Now, look, where the fuck does space, time, and speed come from? <laughs> yeah, well, it's... That's an astonishment all by itself. Yeah. Yeah. And imagine you and I are sitting at a cafe table before the beginning of the cosmos. And mm -hmm. you've predicted that there's going to be a pinprick infinitely smaller than a pinprick. That's going to explode into an entire universe. Mm -hmm. And I know you are crazy. <laughs> I mean, we've been sitting here forever. We've piled up 38,000 coffee cups by now. Um, and um, and nothing like that has ever happened, which means nothing like that is ever going to happen. And then, wham, comes the Big Bang. So you make another, once that unfurling sheet of space, time, and speed is unfurling at super speed, mm -hmm. um, you make another of your nutty predictions. And once again, I know with absolute certainty that you're wrong. Yeah. You say, you see that sheet of space, time, and speed? I predict that at any 10 to the minus 30 seconds of a second, now it's going to precipitate the way raindrops precipitate from a cloud. It's mm. going to precipitate in things. And I say, Michael, you are crazy. Why do they call this space in which we are the nothingness? Because there are no things. 
and there never will be things. And suddenly, whammo, from nowhere, um, pulling themselves together out of space, time, and speed, come quarks and leptons. And there are only 16 different kinds of quarks. I mean, this is all rigidly constrained, to yeah. say the least. Um, well, the weird thing about quarks is they are profoundly social. They cannot exist on their own. Mm. They can only exist in groups of two or three. And they come complete oh, wow. with little etiquette books that tell them what kind of other quarks they should be attracted to <laughs> and what kind of other quarks they should be repulsed by, what other quarks they should rush toward and embrace, what mm. other quarks they should run away from at full speed. Um, what social etiquette books in the first elementary particles? That's, that's not what Aristotle was talking about, for God's sakes. And these things come together in groups primarily of three. Mm. And if the threesome looks like this, mm -hmm. uh, they produce a property that never existed before and was not predictable from knowing the laws of the elements, knowing the laws of quarks. It's not predictable at all. Wow. Um, this way, they are protons, mm. a whole new property that somehow emerges like a ghost from their social relationship. And the other ones that are like this are neutrons. Mm. And just to emphasize how astonishingly social this cosmos is, if you're a neutron and you don't pair up with a proton yeah. in the first 10.6 seconds, of, or 10.6 minutes you're of the, the cosmos existence, you're over and out. Ooh. You undergo neutron decay and you become a proton and a couple of other tiny little particles. Such a wild metaphor, too. Oh. <laughs> Just, so, I mean... so the universe is not only social from the get-go, uh -huh. yeah. but from social agglomerations comes something totally un-Aristotelian. Yeah. Come larger properties that simply are not predictable by knowing the laws of their elements. Yep. They themselves, those larger emergent properties, are elemental in some way to this universe. And the same thing happens when atoms get together. The same thing happens when atoms begin to get together in wisps of uh, cosmic dust and cosmic gas. And when those wisps start getting together in galaxies and stars and planets and moons. The larger social structures, the ones that we call galaxy, mm -hmm. um, star, planet, black hole, yep. um, all of them have properties utterly unpredictable from the sum of their parts or by breaking things down to their smallest parts and understanding the laws of those smallest parts. Mm -hmm. so is it unpredictable is a, or just we haven't been able to arrange that and, and find those laws? It's just they do act at random? We haven't recognized the importance of trying yeah. to understand those laws yet. Got it. Um, oh, God, what is his name? Um, um, uh, uh, um, well, there was a guy who wrote the great mathematics book of the early 20th century, mm -hmm. Alfred North Whitehead. Got it. Um, who wrote that book with Bertrand Russell. Mm -hmm. In the 1920s, did something a lot of people that I know are very focused on, but basically has been utterly forgotten. He worked on what he called emergent properties. In the 1870s, two very bright guys were sitting around a living room in London. 
and uh, and they were deal they were looking at the universe the way they had been taught by the previous two hundred years mm-hmm. to look at the universe, and it was in terms of Newton's equations. And the goal for two hundred years was to define everything, to understand everything in terms of Newton's equations. Um, and they realized that there was a deficiency in Newton's equations. That if if you took one bell jar filled with gas and another bell jar filled with a different gas, and you tried to predict what they would be if you added them together based on your knowledge of their elements. Mm-hmm. Well, look, the one on the left is a gas. You can put your hand up into the bell jar. It goes through with total ease. Um, you can see through whatever it is that's in there with perfect ease. And the other has the same properties. The bell jar on the right has the same properties. Okay, so you know what you will get when you put these two bell jars together. You will get twice as much gas. Yeah. But that's not exactly what happens. You put the two bell jars together and you light a match. Now Mm -hmm. what should you get? Slightly heated gas, right? Add heat and two jars of gas and you get heated gas. That's not what you get at all. You get an explosion that turns your bell jar into shrapnel. Yep. You get a ball of fire. Um, and then when you look afterward at the spot where that fireball took place, you see a little puddle of liquid. So what the hell just happened? A bunch of these guys tried to figure out, okay, this is not predictable by Newton's laws, certainly not predictable by Aristotle's dicta. So what the hell is it? And they came up with a name for this kind of phenomenon, mm-hmm. emergent properties. And when Alfred North Whitehead was trying to think broadly and philosophically in the 1920s, he resurrected the phrase emergent properties. And then when he died, it was lost again. And in the God problem, it's resurrected again. Because without understanding the emergent properties, these larger social properties that come about because things join together because they don't naturally exist in isolation ever at all, um, until we understand these larger social properties, which are whole new layers of reality, um, we don't understand anything. So um, it all kind of goes back to, I mean, just, I mean, they wouldn't have had that discovery if they weren't going by that second rule they spoke of, of science, if they were just using the rules and the information they had initially, instead of looking at it with new eyes or coming up with new concepts that didn't exist. I mean, it shows what that second rule can do. It can move things forward in a, in a way that's necessary to understanding. But it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> because in, in, until you have the words, yep. you don't have the phenomena. Sure. You can't grasp the phenomena. Yep. And then once you grasp the phenomena, I mean, we've had this phrase emergent properties now for 150 years. Mm-hmm. Um, where do we go from there? How yeah. do we start learning yeah. how to predict the next emergent properties? Um, how do we start learning how to predict the, the laws of those emergent mm-hmm. properties? But more important, the, the larger holes that will emerge when those emergent properties come together yeah. in social groups, the yeah. way the galaxies come together yeah. in social groupings. Um, and galaxies are not finished evolving, by the way, not at all. 
because galaxies are subject to the same kind of social forces that everything else is subject to. So what are galaxies doing out there in the universe? They are slowly feeling out each other's gravity and gathering together like sheep in a herd and forming super galaxies. So they're being social in a way as well. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So that's the bizarre universe that you and I live in. And it's time to, as you said, follow the second law of science and open our eyes and see just how bizarre this is and take on the challenge of understanding. Is this all kind of broken down in the, uh, what I think you're currently working on, the glorified theory of everything in the universe, including the human soul? Is this kind of like the culminating thoughts that are coming together in this? uh, Well, yes, because I've been working on that for probably 40 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels like the big picture thing that that, that, uh, everything in science that you've been dealing with would come together. So here's here's how it goes. Mm -hmm. So I am 95% finished with my next book which is the case of the sexual cosmos. Everything you know about nature is wrong. Yep. And and then <laughs> I get to go to work on my eighth book. Is that correct? My No, my ninth book yep. on the grand unified theory of everything in the universe, including sex, violence, and the human soul. I can't wait, Jack. I want to ask you a real quick question about these books because I've read your memoir twice now and I just think it's great. But if you were influenced by Einstein and one of your influences about Einstein is to be you know, genius, you got to be a writer, but also as a writer, you got to be able to explain these um, kind of super complex, um, you know, ideas and theories to someone who is just, you know, an educated person, but maybe not this genius. Is that something you it, like, I guess I'm asking if I'm smart enough to read your other books. I mean, is that something you attempt to do in all your books, try to make it something like, you know, people who are educated, but maybe not in the way that you are can understand? Well, I try to make these things as delicious as candy. There we go. <laughs> um, I try to make these things a, a dessert tray yep. um, for not just your intellect, but yeah. I, I try to uh, do it so that you just can't stop reading mm-hmm. once you start. And yes, uh, my Great obligation, age. as you said, Einstein gave me this job when I was 12. We never met. Yep. But, but one day in school, the kids never made eye contact with me and i didn't even realize that until the last 10 years that eye contact is normal for other human beings um and so one day uh an eighth uh, a fellow eighth grader a girl moved her eyes in my direction which Mm -hmm. was startling it had never happened to me before and then she made eye contact which was twice as startling (laughs) that had never happened before and she said remember i'm 12 years old and she said, I told my mom, you understand the theory of relativity. Well, at that time, the theory of relativity was famous for the fact that only seven people in the yeah. world could yep. understand. It. Yep. But I could not admit that I, I didn't understand the theory of relativity. You get so your as first soon eye as contact, out, you're not going to blow this. <laughs> right. So I jumped on my bicycle uh-huh. and I pedaled to the local library where the librarians literally knew me better than my mother did. Sure. And I said, give me everything you've got on relativity. So they gave me a great big fat book by Einstein and two collaborators. And they gave me a little skinny book by Einstein himself. And the Mm. big fat book had 50 equations on a page and only five words of English. But I had learned that if you put yourself through something you are certain you do not understand and you make it all the way through to the end, by the time you get to the end, you have understood something. So I started with the great big fat book 
And I was only up to page 50 by the time we reached eight, eight o'clock at night. And I suddenly realized my mom's going to put me to bed at 10 o'clock in two hours. And there's no way I'm going to finish this book, much less understand the theory of relativity, because I don't understand equations. I never have. And so I picked up the little skinny book, which yeah. was like, you know, caving in. Mm -hmm. And the little skinny book by Einstein himself had a, a prologue, an introduction by Einstein, which I have never been able to find, Michael, since then. It's not on Google Books <laughs> search anywhere. Another but book that somehow, magically found its way to you. I love it. Yeah. And it said, schmuck. It didn't say that, but yeah, that was yeah. the implication. <laughs> to be a genius, it's not enough to come up with a theory that only seven men in the world can understand. To be a genius, you have to be able to come up with that theory and then express it so clearly that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence mm -hmm. can understand it. And it yeah. so Einstein himself, through the pages of this book, you know, every once in a while in your life, if you're lucky, you have this experience where it feels like the reader reached out through the page and grabbed you by the lapels. Yep. Um, and that's what this experience was like. So he gave me my marching orders, schmuck. If you want to be an original scientific thinker, which is the only thing I ever wanted to be, yep. then it's the only thing I'm fit for, frankly. Um, you're going to have to learn to write extremely clearly. And yep. meantime, George Gamow, the founder of Big Bang Theory, mm. had written a book called One, Two, Three, Infinity. And it, One, Two, Three, Infinity was just delicious. So... I had an obligation that came from Gamow as well. Uh, Don't just uh, make this clear. Make this scrumptious. Uh, yeah. So every single one of my books is designed to be not so simple. That's not the right word. Yeah. So easy yeah. to understand mm -hmm. that you absorb it as if you were osmosis, if it was, as if it were coming in not through your skin, but through your pleasures. Um. And it is delicious stuff. I mean, it just sometimes I think it's served into people in like a heavier way or kind of, a, you know, maybe a, they're not scientific or mathematic in a numbers way. It's delicious stuff, though, when you get to the bottom of it. There was other, um, you know, people reaching out from books that I was really inspired about seeing them inspiring you. T.S. Eliot and Edna St. Vincent uh, Malay. Oh, God, they had a lot a huge in the impact. book. They come up a lot right. in the book. Well, Edna St. Vincent Malay. Uh -huh. We've sort of alluded to the fact that my life has been a never-ending series of adventures. Sure has. And in T.S. Eliot's Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, mm -hmm. he basically says, if you have something heroic in life to do, something you think will define you, um, then start it now. Stop wasting Start it time. today. Yep. Right. Because Talk if you put it off to tomorrow, you will continue putting it off tomorrow. Yep. Mm -hmm. Until you wake up one day and realize that the life force, that the strength that you had in your youth is gone and you no longer have the strength to pursue it. Mm -hmm. So that became an urgent message to me. Start what you think is important today. And um, Edna St. Vincent Millay said to see the infinite and the tiniest of things, you have to deeply experience the pain and emotion of everyone who is going through the extremes of emotion in every single culture on this planet. The power of empathy. Yeah. yeah. So those two things have been goals of mine mm. since I was 16 years old. I believed in the 
clarion call of mm. these two poems yeah and in their power as manifestos mm-hmm. so profoundly that I would wait until a, a friend of mine introduced me to the local jazz club. He uh-huh. was a jazz musician. Yep. And um, I would sit there waiting until two o'clock in the morning when all the acts cleared off the stage. And then I would go up on stage and recite these two poems. Wow. And I recited them as a rallying cry. Um, to the you wanted to, Did you want to share, sorry to interrupt you, but you want to share the message? Was that kind of your aim there? That yes, you were so I wanted inspired? to wake people up. Yep. Yeah. And and it, it took 30 years before I realized that the person, my most important audience in reciting those poems was me. Yeah. Yeah. That I was trying to wake myself up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in T.S. Eliot, there is a reference to a poem called To His Coy Mistress by Andrew Marvel. And at the end of the poem, it says, let us take all our strength and all our sweetness and roll it up in one ball mm. and roll it with rough strife through the iron gates of life. Thus, though we cannot make our sons stand still, yet we will make him run. Wow. So that poem told me your obligation, Bloom, you, you can't stop death. It's going to hit you eventually. Um, but you can give a big fuck you to death by living seven lives in one. Yes. Absolutely. So all of those things together give you the outline of Ooh. the life that I've led. I love that. I love that. You know, these they just come up, these these inspiring motives, and you really have lived your life to them and stuck to it. I mean, the idea of the truth one really blows my mind because you're reading your book and like there's all these wild things. And, you know, it all comes back to the fact that, I mean, you one of your main things is, is truth, you know, or death, pretty much. And it just it's real... Real true. I was really surprised a little bit, especially reading a book out, you know, how the 60s were becoming that uh, uh, LSD was only a one time experience for you. But you took a lot away from that. Right. What did you take away from the? the well, I, I took LSD twice. Oh, it was two times. I, okay. took, I, just... I, I took a huge amount away. Yeah. First of all, I watched while I I had been I had been in pursuit of Zen Buddhist Satori. At the time, that, it, I mean, that you took the LSD. Yeah. Yeah, and and I am one of the things that I had learned or interpreted from what little I knew of Zen Buddhist Satori was there's a pilot light, a little blue flame down here someplace. Uh-huh. Um, okay. And it is your spontaneous reaction to things. But then what I watched with LSD is that spon- spontaneous reaction emerging mm. and then going through a makeup department, like going through the 20 rooms you have to go through at NBC before you're let into the studio, uh, um, where they prim you and proper you and make sure that you're dressed right and make sure that your makeup is going to make you look right on stage. So I watched as that first spontaneous impulse was dressed and um, and put together in just the right way to make just the right impact wow. on the people to whom I would express it. Mm. Mm. Um, and I wanted to get to that spontaneous impulse yeah. naked um, without any of the dressing up and makeup. And and I saw, look, I, the, the first of all, I was laying in a sleeping bag when the LSD hit uh-huh. on a floor in Berkeley, California. Maybe. And the, and the uh, sunlight was streaming in through the windows. And the first thing I did was I opened my mouth and I said one syllable. 
And I found that syllable so fascinating <laughs> that I lay there on the floor like a beach Beautiful. whale, making mm -hmm. whale <laughs> symphonies, uh -huh. um, just testing tiny changes in that, that sound tone in that sound for yeah. a half an hour. Yep. Because every tiny change was infinitely fascinating. Yeah. And I saw a whole body of original works that came out of my imagination as Creations if they that had were been all painted. yours. All yours. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and but but of course when they disappeared, they disappeared. Yeah. I can't paint. Um <laughs> yeah, and can. I couldn't have remembered them. I thought it was very interesting too that um and important if you ask me that you talk about how you know, you were also dragged to, um, you know, circles of hell that even Dante would not be able to um, imagine. Because, I mean, sometimes these tools or there's something so special, it's 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 not all good, but it's not supposed to be. And there's a lot of takeaway there as well. I I, I think it's important. Well, you're lucky if you it. can get a takeaway out of it, because I had one of the friends uh, who encouraged me to drop out of school and who uh -huh. traveled with me, uh -huh. um, at least as far as Seattle and then down to Berkeley. Um she was inherently depressive, as am I. I was clinically depressed for 50 years of my life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, so you could see her when she was on the floor after taking one of these things, yeah. cycling through heavens and hells. Wow. But eventually it was the hells that got her. It stuck with. And, and when I left California, I lost touch with these people. There was no Internet in those days. There yeah. was there were no cell phones. There was no easy way to communicate. Yeah. With a bunch of people who didn't people couldn't carry phones phones were nailed to walls mm -hmm. um with wires mm -hmm. three years later i ran into somebody who had run into her on the west coast and she had succumbed to the hells wow yeah and she had become a vegetable sleeping on people's couches in exchange for sex i would imagine um and she was lost yeah and, and the other person who traveled with me, I've never been able to find on Google. You can find anyone on Google, Michael. <laughs> oh, no, still even can. you and me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> these are and, all and great these... types, too. That was interesting, though, too. I mean, it was, you know, it's so celebratory, the book, and it's so celebratory, your life, and talking about grabbing kind of life by the reins. But also, you know, you do kind of see the some of the negatives you don't shy away from the fallout of 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 the 60s this was even before the 60s started some of the fallout you were talking about as you were kind of ushering it in but i mean you didn't you did have to point out that that you know there were these things that you know wasn't all just uh magic no not at all i mean uh, it was depressing as hell hitchhiking mm -hmm. um sometimes the good part was knowing that eventually you'd get home and be able to tell the story yeah. telling the story was the part that was invigorating i can't believe um, you had to stand for like what was it 700 hours. miles on a on a uh, a coal train just be just I mean, oh that yes yeah, 700 I, miles i just i can't even get my head around just that that whole journey any of the any of the uh you know boxcar journeys especially when you're in a coal car that was just mind-blowing to me well well the coal car thing yeah um i couldn't find an empty car on the train or someplace where i could travel and i was with i met a guy um getting on the train who had dropped out of bible college in kansas and was trying to escape from the martians and the fbi because both of them were after him and they they had planted radio receivers in his teeth mm -hmm. so in other words he wasn't all there 
but he seemed he was <laughs> taller than I was, more athletic than I was, and he yep. seemed to know his way around the trains better than I did. Yep. So he found me a coal car. Now, a coal car has a narrow backbone down the center of the bottom of the thing, the floor. So the, and floor, the floor is six flaps. And the six flaps have a latch. So if you close one of those flaps, if you lift it, and if you latch it properly, it's supposed to last for as far as the coal car goes. And there are six of these that could open, that could fly open at any time if they're not latched properly. That's terrifying. Um, so I was standing for probably about six hours on one of these. Now, you have to understand something. They empty all the coal they can out of a coal car, but what they don't get is the coal dust. Absolutely not. Of course not. And when that car is traveling at 60 miles an hour with an open top, um, there is uh, you have a direct experience of what scientists call convection. In other words, the uh, coal dust is carried uh -huh. from the very back of the car up toward the front. Then it's lifted over the walls of the car and it whips back at 60 miles an hour until it's caught by the hind end again and descends. Which means, first of all, you can't sit there. Mm -hmm. I tried mm -hmm. because there are no shock absorbers. Yep. Um, and the result is that every with every bump that car hits and it hits bump after bump after bump every few seconds, mm -hmm. it tosses you into the air two and a half feet. And then you come crashing down on your pelvic bones um, and are bounced up again. Mm. And that can destroy your pelvic bones. Sure. And it's not comfortable. It, it hurts. So you have to stand up. Now, when you stand up, looking out of the front of the coal car, as I was, that coal dust is just rising to the top and then being whipped back at 60 miles an hour. So it's like having your face sandblasted by black coal dust <laughs> for seven hours. That's insane. You know, it's uh, there's a lot of humor in it. You do you you do such a great job with like self depreciation humor and just like some of these just, you know wild stories. But after that scene is one of the most comical parts of the book when you when you kind of have enough of it. And, you know, you go to the airport and they won't let you. They, there's actually a guy who comes up to you and says, because of your appearance at the time, they don't want to let you on the plane. And that's yes, a, I'm barefoot. barefoot. I have nobody. No man has had long hair yep. ever, it seems. <laughs> Uh, and especially not curly long. It was hair. it was a new thing at the time. The long the Beatles had it was so new that it, it shocked the shit out of people. <laughs> yeah. It absolutely shocked them. Meantime, I had gone to uh, the bathroom of a uh, gas station and mm -hmm. tried to clean this black stuff off. I had a, my face was black, uh -huh. my ears were black, and I had tiny red strips across my eyes where the sandblasting had taken place. And I tried and I tried and I tried. I washed for half an hour and I still came out uh, charcoal gray. Yeah. So I'm at the airport barefoot and charcoal gray, and I've wired home to my parents for money because the railroad police have thrown me off the train. Mm -hmm. And I know from what I've been told by friends who do this all the time, who ride freight trains all the time, that once you get out of California and you start heading east, they become really serious about yeah, they were kind. They were kinder in California as you went east. They were they were a little yes, tough. because they needed the migrant labor to pick fruit. That's right. That's right. So the railroads depended 
on the people who hitch rides yep. on freight trains. Um, so yes, they were kind and generous, mm. but not once you got back east. <laughs> and the railroad dicks, as they were called in those days, said, mm. look, you get back on this train or any train, it's jail. Yeah. Um, so I had wired home for money. And I, meantime, uh, it was going to be eight hours before my flight would take me to Buffalo, New York, my hometown from Salt Lake City, um, which is where I'd ended up. Yep. And a policeman came up and said, you know, you can't be allowed on the plane looking like this. Um, so, uh, and he started to read me the riot act and then said, but you seem like a nice kid. You want me to take you for a cup of coffee? And I don't drink coffee. So I tried you to still don't drink coffee. I, I was going to ask you that. No, no coffee still. No coffee still. Go. So yep. I tried to turn him down nicely. And then a few minutes later, he brought over a guy in a suit and tie. And he said, this is the vice president of American airlines mm. for this airport. And uh, he needs to say something to you. And the vice president gave me the same speech. You can't, we can't, we can't take you on our plane dressed like this. Of course, I had nothing else to dress in. <laughs> but but even though I was carrying, I was carrying a sleeping bag, not a fresh set of clothes. Clorox too, um, right? The, the, the container of Clorox with water in it. Yes, sometimes. the five gallon jug yeah. from a Clorox, a Clorox jug filled mm -hmm. with Kool-Aid. Um, so, but then he said, but you seem like a nice kid. Can I take you for a cup of coffee? So finally, the policeman conferred with the vice president and they agreed I could ride on the airline. Amazing. Meanwhile, I had eight hours to kill before this plane would take off. This is, by the way, in the dawn of the jet era. Yeah, These yeah. were brand new planes and they were the first jet passenger planes yep. that I'd be riding on. Mm -hmm. And I was bored. But I didn't have money. I tended to travel with a dollar thirty-five at most, mm -hmm. and so I went over to the uh, shop, um, the airport shop, and picked up a copy of *To Kill a Mockingbird* and sat down with it because I intended to return it to the stack yeah. or to the shelf um, before I took off. And then I saw the policeman again, and he said, "No, you can't read this book without buying it." Um, but in the end, they were so sweet to me, it was ridiculous. And this, okay, we're looking for fundamental truths here. Yeah. One of the fundamental truths that's in How I Accidentally Started in the 60s, yep. the book, is that people underneath it all are fundamentally generous and kind. Yeah, there's one sentence you did. I circled it. I put hearts around it because you kind of got to this point where like, you know, it, it just, it's, that makes me happy to think about, you know? Well, the, the story starts out, the book starts out with when I was in Eugene, Oregon. Mm -hmm. I had hitchhiked all the way there from Seattle, and I was on my way to San Francisco. And I stood there for eight hours, and I could not get a ride. I could not hitch a ride. Mm -hmm. um, and then this black um, Hudson sedan, a kind of car that had been big in the 1930s, mm -hmm. um, slowed and turned over onto the gravel and then thought better of it and sped up again and left me behind. And then two minutes later, it turned, it went all the Took way around back. the cornfield and came back to pick me up. And when the rear door opened to welcome me in, so many empty beer cans <laughs> fell out that it was musical. Um, so I got in and there were case after case of beer cans and three guys. It turned out they were three murderers.
Mm. So for the first hour or two, they were going to take me all the way to San Francisco. We were in for a seven hour ride. Mm -hmm. Um, And which may have seemed like luck, but for the first hour and a half, they were telling me tales of all the people they had murdered and intimidated and beaten up and starved. Um, And they were trying to scare the shit out of me. And I had visions of myself um, with my hands chained behind me around a, uh, a, a, an electrical pole um, and with a bullet through my head. Um, and then they stopped at a small store and, and as they were stopping, they said, you don't mind a little heater action, do you? And I thought, no, it's cold out here. This is California. <laughs> California gets very cold at night. Um, so I said, no, not at all. And then I realized that they were not talking about turning the heater up in the car. They were The heater was the 1950s name for a gun. Mm. And mm. so two of them got out at this little store with a great big plate glass window. It was a store out in the total wilderness. One of those stores that carries everything from um extension cords to pork and beans Mm -hmm. um and they went in and there was a little old guy in his 60s clearly visible through the window and i expected to see blood spurting from his head at any minute Mm. and that's not what happened they were in there for about 15 minutes and then the two came out grumbling very discontentedly it turned out they were trying to pull a short change routine uh-huh. And that the guy behind the counter had shortchanged them. <laughs> Good on him. They Good were not him. happy. They needed to recover their dignity. So they told me even more murder and mayhem stories. <laughs> well, but in the end, when they ran out of murder and mayhem stories, uh-huh. I said, look, are you guys hungry? It's now about two o'clock in the morning. And um, and I had a, uh, a Wonder Bread plastic sandwich or plastic bread bag yep. filled with sh- sandwiches. Uh-huh. And um, and I had been taught to shoplift, and I hate to admit that because it goes against the truth at any price, including yeah, the price of your yeah. life. But I had ten people to feed, mm-hmm. um, and so I had learned how to shoplift, and that meant one of the things you can shoplift easily is smoked oysters. They come in a little can, like a sardine can, yeah. and another thing is cream cheese because they come in a bar, yeah. um, and those so those easily fit in a jockstrap. Um, in an athletic supporter. <laughs> so uh, they said, what have you got to eat? And um, and I explained cream cheese and oyster sandwiches. Mm-hmm. Didn't sound terribly appetizing to them. And then they found out how I'd gotten it by shoplifting, carrying my jockstrap. And that diminished their appetite even more. And then all of a sudden, they underwent a massive change. They went from telling me stories of murders and all the oral sex they'd gotten to nice. being concerned about me. Yep. yep. And they said, look, you can't do this. Yeah. You are leading a life without purpose. Yeah. And a life without purpose is impossible. Mm-hmm. First of all, you need a woman yeah. in your life. Mm-hmm. Second, you haven't seen your mother in a year. <laughs> That's outrageous. A lot you of people throughout back. your life have got, gave you a hard time about not seeing your mother in a while. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so the deal was these guys had their their generosity yep. had come out full blown. Mm-hmm. They cared about me. Yep. Now I didn't feel that I was lost. Mm-hmm. I did not feel I was leading a meaningless yep. life. To the very contrary, yep. I was leading as mi- meaningful a life as I possibly could. Out there living. Right. But they did not see that and they wanted to save my thick frogging soul. 
it is astonishing. The human so, and remember when I, I went down to San Francisco looking for the beatniks mm. because I thought the beatniks would be the first people in my life who would ever accept me. My parents never accepted me. Uh-huh. Other kids in school never accepted me. And this is my sh- first shot at acceptance. Mm-hmm. And everybody knew where the be- where the beatniks were. It was in every issue of Time Magazine. Every issue covered the latest escapades uh-huh. of these free sex beatniks. And Luce told you where they were, yeah. Yeah, so they were at uh, North Beach in San Francisco at the City Lights Bookshop, mm-hmm. the bookshop founded by the greatest, um, one of the two greatest poets of the Beat Generation, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Mm-hmm. So I hitchhiked, thanks to the guy, thanks to the murderers who tried to save me, all the way to San Francisco, and I managed to make it all the way to North Beach, mm-hmm. and I managed to find the City Lights Bookshop. And I went in, and the, where were the beatings? The place was empty. And there was just one guy sitting behind the counter reading a book. And I asked him where the beatniks were, and he didn't even pay attention to me. It was as if I didn't exist. (laughs) So I walked out on the sidewalk looking like my head had just been smashed with an anvil, like my brains had just been splattered out. I was really, I don't know what the word is, upset. Yeah. I mean, you're looking. Somebody walked up to me and said, You look disturbed about something can i help you mm. a total stranger michael city a big city and, and i said yes i i'm i'm looking for the beatniks uh-huh. and he said hmm and he rolled his eyes up into his forehead and he scratched his head and he thought really hard and he said have you tried colorado <laughs> well colorado was a little bit too, too diffuse yeah. a destination you don't go just hitchhiking to Colorado. You need some city or town where you need to go. So I gave it up. And in the process of going up and down the West Coast, hitchhiking and riding the rails, I accumulated a following. Mm-hmm. And they thought I was on to something because I was I was pursuing this Zen Buddhist Satori thing with such extraordinary intensity and the, the answers to the questions of life. Mm-hmm. And that intensity misled them. It made them think I was onto something. Yeah. No, I was just <laughs> following really big questions. Yep. yep. Um, but that that group became probably one of many groups yeah. that would later get a name as the hippie movement. The hippie movement, absolutely. That's, I couldn't that's, find that's the beatniks, kind of... and I ended up catalyzing a small part of the hippie movement, absolutely. or maybe a big part. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's kind of the premise of the book. But, I mean, yeah, you were looking for community, then you kind of went ahead and made your own community in a certain way. But it was it was interesting how just from an early, early age and just early onset, you were learning and owning how to be different and kind of because, I mean, what else are you going to do when you are looked at as a perpetual outsider in so many different ways? But it was interesting to see how you were finding the benefit of that and how sometimes rejects kind of... Um, you know, see things more clearly because they're looking from a different angle. And just it was there was an optimism to that situation that I kept finding that you were finding a way to make that um, kind of a positive from from day one, from your early childhood. And that's is and another about- strange thing was emerging. Mm-hmm. And that is no group will ever accept me. And so I became very anti-group, very anti-clique. OK, because um, every clique that exists was going to mm-hmm. reject me. But what happened time after time after time was that people were rejected me from their existing groups 
but would accept me as the leader <laughs> of a new group. Wow. So I've been leading groups since I was eight years old, despite the fact that nobody liked me. <laughs> it's been it's been just amazing. And That's... it's an immense privilege yeah. to be able to spelunk, to cave dive yep. from one group to another. And remember what I did in the St. Vincent Millay said. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You have to understand every variety of the human experience at its extremes. If you're going to see the infinite in the tiniest of things. Sure. And if you're going to raise a big fuck you to make thus though we cannot make our son stand still, yet we will make him run. <laughs> you have to you have to dive into as many experiences as you possibly can. And to be a scientist, what does being a scientist mean? Mm. It means the aspiration to omniscience. Since we can imagine an omniscient God, but there are no gods, it's up to us. This yeah. is an aspiration of our own yeah. to be omniscient. And science has and, to be about everything. Mm -hmm. Hence, omnology. Mm -hmm. Because this aspiration to omniscience, to know everything, to piece everything together in big picture ways, has not been clearly articulated in science in my lifetime. And it needs to be. That's so the Howard kids, Bloom Institute comes in. Yeah, exactly. So that's one of our projects. Mm. Um, the other is a project I'm having a hard time getting started. And it's Why Save the Western System. Ooh. And it's based on the idea that every, every belief system that's ever called on our idealism says it is going to raise the poor and the oppressed. But only one system has ever done it in a major way. You could call it the Western system. You could call it the democratic system. Yeah. But one way or the other, if you'd been born in the West in 1650, mm -hmm. or if you'd been born in one of those lovely indigenous tribes that mm -hmm. lives in harmony with nature and at peace with his fellow man, yep. your odds of dying a violent death would have been 10 times what they are in Chicago uh -huh. today. Yeah. 10 times we've increased the peace in the world somehow by mm -hmm. a factor of 10 in yep. the western world and in those nations that have been influenced by the western system That's like not South discussed Korea. enough that is not discussed enough no not at all so plus um if you've been born in 1650 or if you've been born in one of those lovely indigenous tribes mm -hmm. your life expectancy would have been 38.5 years yeah. if you've been born in the west or any of the nations ruled by the Western system mm -hmm. in 2000, your life expectancy would have been 78.5 years. That's a 40-year increase. That's more than doubling the human lifespan. Yeah. If you had taken the first Stanford Binet, or you'd given the first Stanford Binet IQ test, which was administered in 1916, to an average group of 100 kids in the West, mm -hmm. um, then you'd given the same test today to 100 years the kids you measured today mm. would have been would have measured at what was marginal genius in 1916. the average kid today has an iq 35 points higher than the average kid had in 2016. all of these things have happened thanks to the western system if you've been the poorest paid worker in london in 2000, you would have earned what an entire tenement full mm. of the poorest paid workers earned in London in 1850, Irish stock workers. Mm. 
and the poorest paid worker in London in 2000 would have been a personal assistant. Um, so here's the bottom line. If our great-great-grandparents could increase the peace in the world by a factor of 10, surely yeah. we owe another factor of 10 to our great-great-grandkids. Yep. If our great-great-grandparents could increase possible the IQ, too. Right. And yep. if they could increase the IQ by 35 points, we owe another 35 points to our great-great-grandkids. Mm -hmm. And if they could increase... If our great-great-grandparents could increase the salary of the poorest paid worker by seven, a factor of seven, surely we owe a minimum wage of 70 to $100 oh, yes. to our great-great-grandkids. Mm -hmm. um, and that's an obligation. Yep. But to, to meet it, we have to understand what we've achieved because there are many social movements trying to tear the Western system, the democratic system, yeah. to pieces. Yep. Saying that yep. it's the worst system in the history of mankind. Yep. And it's been responsible for enslavement and all kinds of horrible things. Well, yep. frankly, the Western system invented the abolition of yep. slavery. Yep. It's the other the way Western, around. Yeah, yeah. The Western system invented anti-racism. Mm -hmm. The Western system invented anti-imperialism. Mm -hmm. There have been empires around since 500 B.C., but the only system that's ever invented anti-imperialism mm -hmm. is here is the Western system. Absolutely. And the Western system invented the concept of human rights, which is basically a religion because we believe in it without any evidence that the, that, that nature it itself intends yeah. human rights. Yep. I sure do. Yeah. Yeah. It's a religion. That's so, a cool way to think about it. Is this something, have you written about this or is this something in this? I have a manifesto about this. Uh -huh. And I'm uh, I've been looking for somebody who could build this mm. into a program okay. to change the way that we perceive things. Perceptual shifts. Look, you know that I had nothing to do with popular culture mm. um, until I was 27 years old or something like that, wow, because crazy. popular culture was the music of the kids who used yep. to beat me up. Yeah. <laughs> my mother, every two years, my mother would try Someone to make sure showed them. <laughs> and it never worked. And one year, 1955, her effort to make me human was to get me to like Elvis Presley <laughs> and Jerry Lee Lewis. There was no way in hell I was going to like that music. That was the music of the kids who beat the crap out of me. So I listened to Rachmaninoff, Bartok, Beethoven, Stravinsky, people like that. Yep, yep. And then I had an opportunity, instead of going to grad school, instead of undergoing Auschwitz for the mind, Mm -hmm. to get into popular culture. Yep. Again, a field I knew nothing about. And I suddenly saw it as a periscope position. Yeah. I saw it as a position that if I were to use it well, would allow me to get to the dark underbelly where new myths and movements are made, yep. which fascinates me. I talk about mass behavior, that's it. That's and that's the also the, the outsider coming in with new eyes and new uh, new thoughts and just you can come in there and, and offer something that someone who's in that can't offer. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And if you've grown up on Martin Gardner's mathematical game section of Scientific <laughs> American, you have a whole way of thinking <laughs> that doesn't exist yeah. in popular culture. So, yeah, I founded the biggest PR firm in the music industry oh, and I worked with my Jackson, Prilly, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss Queen, Run DMC, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, yep. people like that. Uh -huh. Peter Gabriel, David Byrne. Yep. And, and what was I feeling my way into doing? 
making icons. Mm. And what is the importance of an icon? An icon is profoundly important because I knew that when I was taking an unknown from Minneapolis named Prince, or I was taking uh, another unknown, Joan Jett, who'd been turned down by 23 record companies, mm -hmm. which is just about all the record companies that existed back then. Yeah. Um, my goal was to give kids posters they could put on their walls with stories of your life they could put in their hearts mm -hmm. and they could use you as a trellis on which to grow. You know, yep. the trellis, the vertical thing that Absolutely. holds up tomato yeah. plants. Uh, the vines, I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm in that field. I do a lot of tree work, yep. So I was working deliberately to give you a worthwhile life that you could use as a pattern, as a climbing rod yeah. for your own life. Um, you were so inspired by so many, so many, you know, thinkers and artists and everything. It's finding another way to channel that through and, and, and give people, you know, more inspiration. Right. Well, Danny Goldberg, who was the president of Atlantic Records and the president of Polygram Records yep, yep. and who managed. Uh, no, he had John Mellencamp as an artist on Polygram mm -hmm. um, in his book, Stumbling into Geniuses. He says Howard Bloom treated John Mellencamp like a religion. Wow. And I did, because I believed profoundly in these people That's fantastic. and what they had to offer as a role model. That's beautiful. That's really, really good. I mean, that shows where that's where the sex, the sex comes from. Um, how do people learn more about I'm I'm in more intrigued than ever uh, getting the chance to talk to you, which is an honor. Thank you so much. First off, how do people learn more about the Institute? You know, obviously, dig into your book. Sounds like you got a couple more coming. But the Institute's something that I'd love to know more. Is that where, where do we get information on that? Well, it's uh, you go to HTTP and all of that. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's Howard Bloom, B-L-O-O-M, all one word, Howard yep. Bloom, dot Institute. Dot Institute. Got it. That's the okay. Institute. And That'll more on me is HowardBloom.net. Dot net. Awesome. I'm going to share these all in the show notes and everything. There's just so much to dig into. I couldn't, um, there's, I mean, it's just amazing. Your life, the life that you're living, not live, living, and just so much, so much that you have to offer. It's great. The, I was learning, I was getting inspired by so many other figures while I was getting inspired by you reading your book. And it just, it's, I think you were kind of getting there towards the end, kind of this trickle down effect of inspiration. And when you get it, you want to give it, and you gave it so much in the book. And it was really, really special to talk to you about it. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it too, Michael. Yep. So, so have a wonderful, what, oh, it's 709 already. How did that happen? <laughs> it goes, like, uh, I looked up, I'm like, we were just talking for an hour. I understand, you know what, when, when you were saying that and how people were following you around, listening to you talk is really pretty special. I could see how many people can get wrapped up in it because you obviously have a lot that you can teach us and, and perspective to take away. So it's been really cool. And I can't wait to uh, dig into more of your work and spread the word a little bit. Terrific. Okay. Well, hopefully I'll see you again soon. I hope so as well. Thank you so much, Howard. I really, really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Michael.
Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.